Hey, I'm Tommy Chong. Welcome to High on Homegrown. Yes, yes, everybody, and welcome to High on Homegrown, the cannabis podcast from Percy'sGrowRoom.com. In this week's interview, we see the return of Kevin Jodry. He has been on the show before, and we get him back on the show to talk about the travels he has been on over the last few months. Some real good stories from a legend in the cannabis community. You're going to enjoy this one. It's a bit long. It's just over two hours. So roll yourself a few fat ones. Make sure that you're doing something productive and you're staying busy. And enjoy this interview with Kevin Jodry. And I'll speak to you at the end of this. See you in a bit. No, so you're quickly introduce ourselves because it's been a while since you've been on the show and you've been up to loads as well, but I'm sure we'll get to that very soon. But I am Mackie. I'm from the UK, the host of High and Homegrown, and we also have Monkey Do. Hey, Kevin. Monkey down here in the Southeast United States. How's it going today, sir? Good, my brother. I love your avatars. They're hysterical. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, we, we can't turn our cameras on because of the legal situation, so we might as well mm. do something flashy here, you know? Yeah, so we got you on the show because you've been on um, a long journey. You've been all around South Asia. We were just talking about that. We call it South Asia, Middle East. You've been uh, in India and Pakistan, right? Pakistan. We didn't go into India. We stayed away from that border that, because of the border disputes. Oh, right. Was it, well, it's like unsafe over there. Some friends of mine went over to India, though. Okay. Some friends of mine went over to India with um, Brandon from uh, Zamaya Seed. And they got mm-hmm. to do a bunch of uh, uh, charis uh, making, so that that was that was really pretty cool to listen to that story. Nice. Yeah. How long did you spend out there? Uh, Twenty-two days in Pakistan. Wow. And what you just going up into the mountains and uh, just camping and things like that? What was it like? Oh man, it was crazy. It it's 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 almost hard to explain just because it's the top of the world. So you're at the highest portion of the earth in terms of uh, altitude. Mm. And so what we really did was we recreated the silk route. So we took this route over from, you know, the Indian border all the way towards Afghanistan and then dropped down. And the, the land race team brought us out to recreate the, the, uh, the, the journey of the silk route, but to also reestablish the essence of the silk route, which was this, trade route between countries that allowed civilization to really skyrocket in terms of development because nobody has a chokehold on intellect. And so we recreated this travel through the Kurukuram, Himalayas and Hindu Kush mountains. And we got to experience, uh, it was unbelievable. We got to experience the world of Pakistan in a way that I, I had no idea the, the, in enormity of the of the region it was just absolutely unbelievable mm. again to experience the real culture of the locals in those area that's very cool man. it was beautiful the 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 mountains are so savage you know because you're looking at like a peak elevation of around twenty eight thousand feet ridiculous the highest yeah. we went up was around fourteen thousand when we uh went through that kyber pass and so most of the trip was probably around, you know, eight to 10,000, eight to 12,000 feet. But in a, in a verticality, this sheerness, this complexity of these mountain ranges. And it helped you understand 
the the culture of being cool to strangers and travelers because if you were a stranger or a traveler and you were in those regions you need help when you need help and mm. so there was this theme that remained constant through this entire and i'm talking we went like 3000 kilometers of travel and it was no matter where we went, what farm we looked at, what region we explored, we were climbing up the side of hills, going into farms. Any person we bumped into, when they when they saw us, they instantly knew that I obviously wasn't Pakistani. The response was so overwhelmingly friendly and mm -hmm. welcoming and sharing. And here, take apples with you on your journey. Let us get you <laughs> some walnuts for your journey. Would you would you like to sit and have tea with us while you're here? It was so different than the way we behave in the U.S. And so, I mean, I'm fortunate that I have mm -hmm. a good community and I have some really lovely friends and family. But in general, if you wander into somebody's yard lost, you don't quite get that response. Mm -hmm. No, not at all. Where there it was just absolutely welcoming of, oh, you're a stranger. Our cultural mores, our norms say that we will treat you like family. And I don't care where we went or what we did, that held true. And it was just, it just made the experience so above norm because, you know, the region's incredible, the hash was incredible, but man, the people and how they behaved and treated strangers was even greater than that. It it completely shocked me. I had no idea the culture was, was that cool to people. Mm. It was just the That's first time you'd uh, been to a place like that. Well, yeah, definitely in a place that had, I mean, I've been all over Colombia and Mexico and other places where like I spent time up in the mountains working with the groups mm. in those regions, but they're, they're more similar to us just due to the European influence, right? So mm. the European influence, you know, it, it changes South America, Central America, Mexico, but Pakistan's Pakistan, man. Pakistan, yeah. you know, it all used to be Hindustan, India, Afghanistan, Pakistan. But they formed Pakistan to be this Muslim nation. So it's the most Muslim nation in the world in terms of like sheer numbers. And so for me, it was such a radical change to be around a culture that I'm really unfamiliar with. I don't have a lot of Muslim experience. I just don't. I've been, I'm in California. You see touches of it here or there. But to be able to see that culture, that religion, and how they work with the region was so radically different that it was like, I mean, literally like being on the moon. Mm. It, it was it was just such a, a radical departure from my norm. And I loved it. Mm -hmm. I really, really loved Pakistan. Yeah. And what was it like smoking at that elevation as well? You say 14,000 feet. Did you... you find cannabis hit you different, hitting you harder, getting higher, easier? Um, you know, what's funny is that for them, when it, cause I was like, we, 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 when we got there, we got a, we got half a key of hash handed to us. So we had like wow. five or six different samples that made up a, a 500 grams. And that was Whoa. given to us as soon as we got there. So we had hash to smoke on the trip. <laughs> but what was really interesting is that I know it, you can't beat that one. And I mean, it was primo dry sift too. I'll but bet, yeah. what I, what I noticed was that for us in the U.S., we're really obsessed with gaseous profiles. We like things that are, are petroleum and odor profile. And it's and typically odors that are petroleum, you know, diesel fuel, um, gear lube. 
they're really incapacitating as a high. They, they really rock you. And what they do in the mountains of those regions is they off gas that product for the way they, the way they process is they harvest the herb. They let it sit for about four and a half, five months. Then they make the hash. Uh-huh. And that sitting process in that cold, dry air of the winter gently off gases the petroleum side of it, and it reveals fruit and floral profiles. And everywhere we went, I noticed the same thing. And I just started to ask all the farmers and the hash makers, you know, why do you choose what you choose? And it was that they don't like the high incapacitation of the gaseous type aromas because it makes it too difficult to live on the edge of a mountain. And so you're going up and down these slopes <laughs> that are insane. I mean, if you slip yeah, and fall, you're going to die. Point, isn't it? <laughs> and, and I'm serious. I never thought about it. But, you know, mm. the, they they off gas it. And it was funny because I was talking to one of I was talking to my buddy Dwight and he was one of uh, Neville's really good friends. And he worked with Neville for years in breeding. And he and I were having the conversation about Pakistan. And he said the same thing about Neville, that Neville didn't like gaseous varieties. He didn't like the incapacitation of that direction. And he purposely bred away from it. So when you look at all of Neville's breeding work, there's very little gas in it. And it wasn't by accident. It was on purpose. His desire was also more acuity, you know, mental stimulation, but the ability to function at a little higher level. Mm-hmm, and right. when we were walking up and down the mountains. And so you you definitely knew you were high because the altitude and all you had to really like I prepared for it pretty well with a, a tremendous amount of cardiovascular training before I went so that my base organism was strong. Right. And then all I needed to do was just get used to the fact that there's lower atmospheric pressure to push the O2 in. And so what you learn is you learn pace. You learn how to walk at a pace that doesn't let you really get overly fatigued too quickly so that you can stay pretty much oxygenated and the hash basically numbed some of the the muscular strain and it gave you this overall sense of like Mm well-being and peace so it was really different you know like in the u.s man we're, we're driven on brutally aggressive highs and there they're driven on extremely effective sensations of well-being comfort and just say the satisfaction. And it was it was really clear to understand why once we went up the side of this mountain. And I'm laughing because there's kids and old men and, and girls just coming up and down this like goats. And we're hanging on for our lives, afraid we're going <laughs> to die. And we're just skipping up and down this shit. And you you're, you're grateful that you weren't overly incapacitated because if you slip, man, you were gone. Wow. Like, like the the scale of pitch and size was so overwhelmingly big that no picture or words mm-hmm. really can describe it. It yeah. was crazy to look up and see something 15,000 feet above you. And you're looking down into a valley that falls like 4,000 feet sheer. And Oof. you know that there's still another 8,000 feet below that to get to sea level madness i'd love crazy. to go and see it because like you say you oh, wouldn't do a benefit you know youtube videos it just doesn't do a benefit you have to go there and see that kind of thing incredible the glaciers sight. as well the glaciers i i really didn't i never you know what's funny is that you know you you have an understanding of things but until you see them you really can't truly lock it all in 
And I had the hardest time understanding the concepts of like Shangri-La, where mm. that was this mythical place that was written into a book. And it, it described a region in the Himalayas that was tropical. And I had the hardest time understanding how you could have such lushness in such a dry, arid environment. And I didn't understand the, con the concept of glaciers, where these massive drifts come out of the mountains and form these huge oceans of frozen material. And that runs and creates your water source. And so your precipitation is really low. Anything that's high mountain desert is classified as under 10 inches. What, what would that be like? Uh, 100 centimeters, maybe? And of rain. No, it's only so uh, ten, 10 inches is about uh, 30 centimeters. 30 centimeters. So yeah. I could I could never understand that concept until I was there. And then you get to see the size of a glacier where it is it is so massive as it moves through the mountain range and you can see it carving and creating and all the ridges on it look like an ocean. But we're talking like 100 foot ridges because the whole glacier might be three or four hundred feet thick. And then, you know, a half a mile wide and two or three miles long. And I think Pakistan's got like 7,000 glaciers in total. Damn. So when you're up in these wow. mountains and you see all these glaciers pushing this water and it's, and it's scraping all the rock, bringing all the mineral in, sending it through. So everything's like super mineralized. All the food had a profoundly rich flavor. The, there was just a level of health and vitality in the, the nutrient base that you, it made you start to understand how the people had lived in these regions and had such long lives and how there was such a lush, lushness and richness in the valleys. And man, it just let me, it let me see a reality that I just, I couldn't put together from reading. Mm -mm. Sounds like you're ready to pack up and move house, mate. <laughs> you know, I'd love to go back and I, I could handle spending like a summer in the Hunza or, or a, a summer in the, in the Hopper Valley. But the winter, once winter kicks in, it's, you know, it's zero and it's covered in snow and you're basically locked in. And I grew up in New England on the coast. So, you know, I was used to that, you know, heavy blizzards, brutal cold. And I think it's one of the reasons why I like Northern California so much because we don't get that. So mm -hmm. I could handle being in Pakistan through the summer, spring and fall. But damn, I don't know if I want to do four months locked in a rock house trying to survive Oof. the cold. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. It's nice when you go at the cold. right time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the right time, and you you'll have an experience that you can't you can't explain. You have to feel it—the crispness of the air, the the flavor of the tea, the the quality of the walnut the 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 subtleties of the apple like little little details that that just pop in your mouth and you just feel so full and healthy all the time and the air quality is incredible it's it's pristine it's, it's just mm. so isolated that it's hard to screw it up and mm. because of the, the 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 difficulty of getting into these upper regions you don't have industrialization at all you still have people traditionally herding goat and sheep, farming apple, farming nut, farming pomegranate and a potato. They're masters of uh, cold storage. So the, the Pakistanis, Afghanis mastered the art of food preservation. So they showed me this 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 hole in the ground 
lined with rock and in it was butter that they had wrapped and they said some of that butter is 40 years old Whoa. and it allows them to have a fat source in the winter time but completely preserved no spoilage they were just the masters of of controlling product quality using the tools they had just like mm-hmm. dry sift their dry sift tech and how they how they work it and move it and their familiarity with the resin was amazing see like nowadays for us and it's no and it's no slight to the artisans of the new world of hash but they have incredible technology to use to assist them in the process where within Pakistan the technology is very simple but the art is at a level that you can't you can't discount because they've been you know some of these villages we went to they've been making hash for almost 2000 years yeah so your grandfather taught the father the father teaches the son I asked the son, how long you've been doing this? And he said, oh, my first memories as a kid, you know, when I was three is making hash with my dad. And now I'm almost 40. (laughs) And the way they move the hash in their fingers, it was just, you know how it is. Anytime you do something for time, the way you touch it, hold it, move around it. It's a familiarity that if you're into craft type work, you can appreciate anyone else's Mm -hmm. professional approach. And to see the way the hash moved in their fingers, and it was just really interesting. It was humbling, really. Mm. Sounds like a great time, man. You'd have a blast. The crew is unbelievably kind, extremely knowledgeable, and they brought with them some unbelievably educated individuals where they weren't just smart about their craft and their trade. They were brilliant about the history of their region. And so there was this this really profound love for the country and the culture and the details. So we always had this commentary, no matter where we went of what was occurring, why was it occurring? And it allowed you just to immerse yourself in a way that when you left, you left with part of Pakistan in you and you brought it home. Nice. And, and I brought, I brought home some of the clothes and I still wear them when it's cold. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I did that. I took, I went full Pakistan. And I loved it. It was like when I was working in, in up in Bogota in Colombia, the same thing, you know, you're getting Yama, uh, you know, wool to wear. And I still have some of that. So when it's cold, I throw it on, but it's traditional wear. And people yeah, look at you like authentic, nuts, you know, nice. yeah, and it's, and it's very effective. And you start mm-hmm. to learn that layering and moving the stuff and how it cloaks the middle body, but lets the arms be free. And it was it was just really um, anytime you travel and you you get to. You just can't compare, you know, you never compare when you travel. At least I don't. I try to appreciate the place I'm in exactly as it is. And mm-hmm. I try to appreciate the people exactly as they are so that I get to be part of it. And I, I just embrace what they do. If they eat the food, I eat the food because if it's not killing them, it's not going to kill me. Mm-hmm. And it just might just give you the of, shits really bad. <laughs> yeah, you, and, and I go, oh man, I got sick as hell when we were in Islamabad. Mm-hmm. No but doubt. Once we got up into the mountains, there was a level of purity to everything where there was zero yeah. issues. But in Islamabad, mm-hmm. I, my partner um, Hamad was was telling me what to eat, not to eat, and they put the food on the table. And one of the other Pakistanis said, "Oh, this yogurt's excellent." And he put it on the food. He said, "Try this," and I put it on. And as I'm eating it. Hamad turns to me and says, whatever you do, don't eat that yolk. 
Gert. And I was like, oh, this is going to be brutal, man. And that night, man, I was exploding on all ends simultaneously. Oh. Holy shit. I thought I was going to die for a minute, right? I was laughing. I said, I just got here and I'm already going to die. Yeah, and you really got to be careful you eat, man. Damn. Ooh. And, and it's the same with all countries I worked in. And I used to work all mm -hmm. along the equator, all the way out to like New Guinea. And so it's the same deal. You're always cautious, but every now and then you make a mistake and you take a drink and you realize there's an ice cube in it. Oh, you got a problem. Mm -hmm. And in this case, uh. it was the yogurt. But once we got up, you know, into the, we went going to the Hindu Kush first then through the Korakoram. Once we got into the mountains, the purity of the food and the way it made your body feel the, what I learned is, and we know this is from being organic farmers, but our nutrient density is really low in the U.S. because what we've done is we've depleted our natural soils and we rely on chemical agriculture to create the product. Mm -hmm. So when we test vegetables in the U.S., they're unbelievably low in quality compared to maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago. So, you know, way more crop yields, way more resistant, way more of everything, but far less effective as a nutrient source for humans. And when I was in the mountains, you could eat a small quantity of food and feel full for hours. Mm. And it was this, it was, it was just such a, a perfect example of what happens when you allow the natural environment to balance with the product and create a food source that people actually can thrive on. Mm -hmm. And you, there was nobody in Pakistan in the mountains did any exercise. And that's what we were, they were talking about. It says no exercise occurs, just eating the food, living at altitude and working outside. And every single human being was in shape, yeah. lean, healthy. It was just such a, you know, I think the U.S. is like over 50 percent, you know, considered like obese. Right. So yeah. our, our health level in America is trash. And to go in the mountains and experience what it was like to have clean food. It was almost like when I was in Russia. Russia was the same deal. Russia has an unbelievably quality of food production methodology where they focus on biologically driven organic methodologies. Mm -hmm. And when well, I banned GMO Russia, food out there, don't they? Yeah, none. They banned it. And and so when I got back from Russia the first time is when I noticed it when we ate at the airport because we were hungry and my son and I both felt ill and we realized, whoa. We had spent too much time in Russia and our system was now kind of purified and used to Russian food. Mm. And once we got back to the U.S. and ate commercially available food, we instantly did. And, and it was different meals. So it wasn't, you know, we both had the same thing. And when the when the Russian athletes come over to visit, they always say the same thing. They're like, whoa, once we start to eat American food, we don't feel well. Mm. So it was it was really interesting to be able to experience what it's like to have high nutrient density food and how you feel so full for so long on, on small quantities. Nice. Man. It, it just sounds like a beautiful holiday and it sounds like you've had a, you know, it's, would you say it was a life changing experience? You seem you seem to be um, opened your eyes to certain bits of their culture. Oh, 100%. You know, you got to remember that, like, I'm from New England. So, you know, where I'm from on the East Coast, Rhode Island was like 97, 98% white, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's what I know from New England. Then I, right. I moved to Hawaii. I lived there for a couple of years, and I get to experience uh, Polynesian culture. And then I go to California, and I'm in the Bay Area, then I'm in Humboldt. 
So what I've never experienced was Muslim culture mm. and the 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 way they behave in terms of, you know, treating strangers and foreigners and the number of strangers that would just walk up to me just to say hi and to be welcoming. It blew my mind and it, it just made me it made me see the world in a better way. I think it 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 let me see a, a kindness that was inherent on something that I think is important that when you bump into strangers and I try to, I try to always be pretty cool. They made it a cultural norm. And I just, I just really loved it. I love that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to do it, man. It sounds like a, a great holiday. And when you was out there, we have a question here. I think it was from Arnie Scarpa. Where was that? Um, he asks, how does the altitude affect growing cannabis? Do you know anything about that? Did you do any research into I that do, kind of thing? I do. Typically, when you go up in, and, and it's the same, it's the same everywhere. U.S., Canada, Colorado, Colombia, Mexico, Pakistan. As you rise in altitude, you're, you're, you're having um, definitely more extreme weather shifts. So your night and day temps are much different. And the more we have that night and day shift, what we get is we get a higher uh, metabolite production. So we're going to see unique cannabinoids and we're going to see other unique metabolite compounds that we don't see at lower altitudes. But we typically get, say, you know, 25, 30 percent less yield because that colder temperature stops the chemical activity. So I think that anything from altitude is typically what I would define as better drug cannabis just not the same quantity of biomass. Hmm. Right. And that, that's pretty much because of the cold then. You're slowing down the metabolism of the plants. Yeah, and and you're you're and the plant has to respond to these extreme swings. So the right, plant's right. having to create protection and protection mm -hmm. for a plant is metabolite. But mm -hmm, also mm -hmm. as we rise in altitude, we also start to get what I would believe is more intense sun. Because right. you have less atmospheric filtration. So the higher you rise, the the cooler the temperatures are, but the light is more intense. Yeah, and more so UV since, gets through, right? Is that what it is? Yeah. And so mm -hmm. since 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 light isn't just energy, it's also information, the plant responds to it. So I just noticed the correlations between lowland and highland drugs. And I would just say in general, Highland drugs are just a little bit more sh sharp, just weird little edges. And when I do like COA, Certificate of Analysis, on varieties over the years, I just noticed that when we do any kind of like development work at altitude, it it's worthless for anything lower because it's not going to be the same plant. It, you're going to get, you know, in my case, when I was doing the development up on the mountain, and then we were trying to sell the products to people in the valley. We were losing maybe like six, six and a half points on THC and then multiple points in other metabolites. And it's because the plant had to respond to it at that altitude. So you start to learn about putting the plants that you're going to do development work in the right location for where the farms are. So if all the farms are at 600 feet sea level, you know, 200 meter, then you would have to do all your development there to really find the plants that did well at that altitude. Once you start to change altitude, the numbers go crazy. The mm -hmm. measurable numbers. All right, all right. 
Damn. Yes, yeah, so that's a good answer to your question there, Arnie. We have another one. We have a few questions in the chat here. Uh, how many times do you rub the plants one time only or more over time? I think he's, uh, this is from Mad Dog. And I think he's referring charis. to making charis. Yeah. They're did doing charis, charis. And no, I didn't do charis. What, what they did there was all, all dry sift over screen. But I was just talking to uh, some guys out of India and they were talking about the development of varieties that you could normally you rub one plant and then you're done rubbing it because you've destroyed it. But it right. was it was genetics that had been found that created multiple waves of resin production. So you could do your, your first rub and basically, you know, destroy the flowers. But the plant would rebloom and then you would have another flush of resin to take again. And so I think that, you know, by far the majority of people doing charis are doing it in a single grab, mm-hmm. but there is definitely plants that have an ability to be grabbed multiple times. Kind of like if you look at places like Zamal, like the Reunion Islands, where the, the, the climate and the situation is so ideal that the plants literally are almost like biennials where they grow for a year and then they flower. So they have these crazy, crazy long flowering periods, and then they reflower and reflower. So, I mean, in, in the right climate, you could cut the plant and leave enough of it, and then it would then re-blossom and go again. Whereas for us, you know, in, in our hemisphere and latitude, it's determinate. It, it's this is when it's done and it's done and it's over. Mm-hmm. But when you have the a buffered environment. And you're also not able to rely on technology. You have to rely on the natural propensity of plants to survive. You find the outliers that survive. Mm-hmm. And that, like, that's what was brilliant about the Pakistanis, too, was that and, and it would be Pakistani, Indian and, you know, Afghanistan in terms of cultural belief. India, they don't do the roguing where they have all male, all female. But in Pakistan, they leave all the females, but they go through the crop and they systematically rogue out the males they don't want. But the males they choose are not homogenous. They're extremely varied, but they exemplify quality. So all of them are going to have good resin, but it might be big heads. It might be small heads. It might be uh, really greasy. There might be a purple color, might be a red color, might be a green it might be a fuel profile. It might be a fruit profile. It might be a deep earth profile. But the males were all kick-ass males. So every male that I saw was like a really stud, studly male. <laughs> and they use that as their selection. And then if the village across the mountain wants genes to work with, they share them. Wow. So what you're getting is you're getting like an inbred population with subtle outcrossing. So that you're never really driving the vigor down from excessive inbreeding. And the culture is more of we all want to produce good product because primarily in these regions, hash isn't the product that was the primary driver of cannabis. It was the seed. They Mm -hmm. wanted the seed as a food source. It's a critical food source for winter. And then they realize when they're getting the seed that the goat, yeah, I was talking to villagers, they said, yeah, they said, we noticed animals were having an impact from eating it. And then they said that we, we believe what happened next was we probably burned it in the, in the hut to stay warm. And lo and behold, we converted the acid form of cannabis into, into its um, intoxicating form. And lo and behold, people said, whoa, 
what is the part that gives us this effect? And then they started to learn resin separation. So the seed is still legal in Pakistan as a food source, right? So, and every farm we went to had, you know, at least a quarter acre of cannabis on it growing specifically for this combination of need seed to get their um, omegas and fats and then resin to give them a product that allows them to be able to feel good function and live through that four month frozen ass in in the <laughs> i'm talking like you know abominable snowman yeti kind of shit <laughs> damn man it must be some good shit as well it, it was it that... was fire did you manage you know, to eat any seeds though. sorry I did. I did. I brought back a lot of seeds. No, did well, you eat any we though? Went... Oh yeah, I ate some too. What's it taste I like? To try... It tastes like um, I would say like regular hemp seed that I get here uh, in the U.S. It's just that the shell was a little tougher and the right. meat was a little sweeter, almost hmm. identical to a walnut. Like the walnuts. See, walnuts is a major crop in California, so we eat a shitload of them. Almonds and walnuts are grown like crazy here. Mm. So if you're in California, you're getting a lot of walnut and a lot of almond in your in your food because you're it's accessible to buy. Yeah. So I eat a lot of it and I use it as a, a good fat source and a nice little energy source when I, you know, want to put a little bag of food in my pocket if I'm doing some work. So I eat a lot of it. And <laughs> the comparison to California walnut was so radically different. It it was like the California wa walnut. The shell is easier to break and the meat is more bitter. Almost like if we look at a wine and we say the bitterness is connected to tannins, those compounds that create that bite on your tongue. Mm -hmm. California walnuts had that bite, but the Pakistani walnuts did not. It had this beautiful, subtle layers of flavor that I had never experienced in eating a walnut. Now, I, I laughed. I was like, have I ever had a fucking walnut? <laughs> because... It was like a different, it was a different food source. It was, it was trick. Yeah, man. When you go out there into these sunny countries as well, they are, uh, the food just is nicer. No one is naturally grown like that. Just like, I remember being um, in Cyprus and just the oranges and the tomatoes specifically, they were just so much better than anything you get here in the UK. Yeah. So, and, 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 I feel you. Like, so, I mean, we're kind of spoiled in Cali just because we have such an incredible mm -hmm. California is an agricultural powerhouse in the world. Like California can stand next to any country in terms of what we can grow in terms, you know, we go from like five, a to 10 B zoning. So like yeah, huge, yeah. you know, you're going from 42 latitude down to 30. So, you know, we're capturing basically Southeast Asia all the way up above you know, top Asia. So mm -hmm. almost any cannabis variety can be grown in California. Almost any food source can be grown. If it's frost resistant, you just take it south and there's no issues. So like we're really fortunate. But when I go to the country of origin, it lets me see the essence of what like we call Appalachians. And Appalachians, you know, by definition are, are you know, regions that have a historical relevance, that have a significant impact. And the genetics form their existence with that microbiome of the soil and the air and all factors creating this unique product. And so when I went to Greece the first time is when I really 
started to understand it because all the fruit trees that we brought into the into the Americas, so many of them came from Europe. And when I was eating figs in Greece, it was when I realized, whoa, a, a Greece, a, Gre- a Grecian fig is better than a California fig. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it was that it just matched everything perfectly. And that was like Pakistan as well. It was the it was the potatoes that caught me that I couldn't get over the flavor of a potato. Yeah. And each area, had, it, it was weird, man. I was like, I was like, well, you start becoming addicted to certain types of foods while you're there. And there was another one that I just thought was hysterical, but they called the mountain cow and it was the yak. And so we were eating yak burgers and yak food. And it was almost like Kobe beef because it had mm. this extra level of oily greasiness to it. Ooh, and it was like so, that. So, oh, <laughs> A yak burger. I mean, listen, you're cracking up because, like, when when when's the last time you busted out a yak burger? You know, but you got say the was, last time. Exquisite, <laughs> exquisite. Me neither. <laughs> and so that's what I really enjoyed. You know, from being in the place was there's things that are you can't replicate, and that's that's what you have to learn to appreciate about you know global cannabis in general is that you can take something from a place and grow it somewhere else. And in many cases, you can find things that actually grow the better. But there's some things that you cannot grow better and you can't replicate unless it's in that exact region. It needs all the details that formed it to fully express its genetic potential. And when we take it and change it, if we don't have that microbiome to interface with the plant, the plant can't command it to do what it needs. And it's different in effect. So like, Cambodian out of Cambodia is not the same as Cambodia out of California. All things done right. If we if we say that the the flower was created correctly and it was the right genetics, the home of origin cannabis typically is more refined. And that's just my experience. Colombia in the mountains of Colombia is different than if I grow Colombian in California. Mm-hmm. You think that's down to the uh, the microbes in the soil? You think that's part of it? Oh, 100%. percent. I mm. think it's the whole. My, the, the the biome, it's the entire microbial world we're in that exists in the soil, exists in the air, mm-hmm. and then exists on other plants around it in its own unique way. Because so many of these microbial populations can move into the plant and then move through the plant, go down into the soil, come back out of the soil, go up on the plant, come out on the leaf yeah. and move. So what you're what you're having is this impact. And a really good example of that that helped me understand this was that a friend of mine is a like a microbial wizard and he gets sent out to operations all over the world to to look at problems in organic farming. And there was a winery in France that was really struggling and they had been in business for two or three hundred years and had this exquisite wine. And all of a sudden the quality dropped and they could not understand why. So he goes and tests the field. He looks at all the stuff and he, he just can't find it because at the end of the day, our, our understanding of microbial populations and the diversity is we're almost like newborns. We, mm-hmm. we don't have the, the words or the knowledge to look at the total picture. So he tries to look at clues to give him an idea. And while he was working, because he's telling me the story, he goes and I goes and I looked up, he goes, I'm looking at the ground. I'm sitting there and I look up. And I notice these forests in the background and I notice the change in the color of the soil that that looked like an edge and then a wave. And, and so I went and told the farmers and said, 
what what's different? And they said, oh, those oaks that we have there, we log back. And so he said, that's interesting. So he goes and he starts to look at the the oaks. And what he finds is that there's a microbial population that lived only on the leaf of those oaks. And when it rained, it would take the microbial population down into the soil. And it made this impact on the grape increase its quality by like, you know, two points. But when you go from an 88 to a 90, that's a big difference in money. And, mm. and and in perceptible quality from people who are sommelier, it's like there's there's definitely a quality difference when you go from B to A. And he was able to identify that they had logged these trees back too far for the microbes to land on the ground and migrate into the grape roots. That's crazy. Just the yeah, just these minor things that make such a difference. Huge. Wow. And, and that's where we're you know, and it's funny too because. I mean, I'm lucky that I get to be around so many diverse people. So like scientists and then what I would call like organic scientists where they don't have a college education, but their Mm -hmm. knowledge of soil science and biology is so absolutely on point because it's applicable. They're Mm -hmm. doing it. They're not studying it. They're doing it. So -hmm. when you get to talk to scientists and you get to talk to people that are doing it, in, and 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 they're artisans and they're producing products that are unreal. And what they say is, I just noticed these patterns. I noticed that if these things occur, this happens. When it doesn't occur, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so I get to, you know, meet so many interesting people like that, that it just, it, it just helps you always understand how little we know. And so it's funny, the older I get, the dumber I feel. Yeah. And, and I'm okay <laughs> with it. Yeah, I'm serious. It's funny, but like, I don't, try to know everything like when i was Mm -hmm. young i was so focused on i need to understand and then now as i got older i said i just need to experience yeah because some of the understanding in order to understand we have to limit to define and if i have to limit to define then that means that i'm not understanding because i'm having to say this does this and this does this but what do they do in synergy and that's something that you just have to experience and it, mm. it it's it allows us to be able to say that all regions on earth that produce products if it's if it's i if it's developed there and done correctly it is definitely a product that can stand next to any product in the world for the right consumer Mm-mm. you mentioned earlier as well when you you said you had a crew when you got to pakistan as well is that like a tour guide you can book or something did you know people out there about that, that put you in contact with these people you know it was it was cool it was cool it was um it's called let's be friends pakistan and and what you got is you got a group of men that are in their mid 40s early 40s and they are from pakistan and and then they had moved out of pakistan they live in the uk but their heart is in pakistan and they had to move out of pakistan to the uk because pakistan went through a financial collapse really after 9-11. So 9-11, the, the war, you know, between U.S. and the Middle East or that, you know, Afghanistan and, and, and whoever, whoever, whatever villain we're creating to say we had a problem with. Mm-hmm. That destroyed Pakistan's tourism industry. Destroyed yeah. it. And I mean, I'm talking like they hadn't seen a white person up in these mountains in two decades. 
So wow. like people were coming out looking and 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 there's no question I'm white and I got a giant white beard and I'm I'm so white I'm glowing. I barely catch a tan <laughs> in California, right? And so they were like, whoa. And they were coming up and they just wanted to like touch your arm to see like, whoa, I haven't seen, I've never met a white person. Wow. And they couldn't believe I was there. And they're like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, visiting your country. And they were like, and you're having a good time? And I'm like, I'm having a great time. And they were like, and they almost wanted to cry. And they, all they asked every, I mean, I'm talking hundreds of people through this, you know, journey through the world. Anywhere you went would bump into you. And they all had the same exact thing. Please take this memory home with you and let others know about our region. Cool, man. And it was the simplest. It was from kids to elderly. And all they wanted was to change the perception that Pakistan was filled to the brim with um, inferior. Just mm. everything was less. And it's such a diminishment as a culture that it it impacts everything that happens when they move and leave. Because when you're getting diminished and impacted, you leave, you overemphasize when you're in the next place. So like if, if we're not persecuted, we typically behave differently. And what they wanted in, in, in their case was to be able to bring a view of Pakistan into the world. And because they have a relationship with the Let's Be um, Friends, Pakistan has a relationship with the land race genetics team. Oh. They said, can we do it through cannabis? Because maybe the cannabis people will be bold enough to do this trip. And so they reached out and spoke to me about it. And said, hey, we have this idea and, you know, we, we want to put it forward in the future and we just want to bring it to you to see, would you be interested? Because we, we think that if we were able to bring you and some other people that are in the cannabis world that are public, maybe it would allow us to have a different view of the region. It would allow people to see our homeland in a better way. And so what they did is they put this entire idea together, the whole traveling the Silk Road, and then they dry ran the whole thing once to make sure their whole trip and plan worked. So the 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 inspiration was people who lived in a country that had been crushed and their hearts were still in that rubble. And they wanted to change their the world so that maybe their kids would be able to re-enjoy uh, pride of being Pakistani. Mm. And it was just, it was really a beautiful thing. And, and, it, and it, it was expressed in every inch of the trip by the way we were treated and how they made sure we got to see such an absolute monumental amount of diversity along the journey. So we got to see, we got to go up in the mountains and find all these, like the Buddhists don't have temples so much in Pakistan. They have like giant rock carvings that they would gather and pray at. We got to look at these giant rock carvings. I mean, the size of a house where the whole face of it was smooth and it was carved as the ascension of Buddha. And it showed all these evolutions of Buddha evolving until it got to the prime Buddha. And I'm talking that thing was probably like 1200, 1300 years old. Damn. It was crazy, huge. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're over there looking at Buddhism. We're going in and we're we're seeing the places that where Alexander the Great's armies left their people. And you're seeing people that have red hair, green eyes, full 100% Pakistani. And it was these incredible amounts of diversity and 
intricacies and nuances that let you experience like what the what the Silk Road was about. And that mm. Silk Road, that desire for Rome to acquire like Silk Road originally was migratory routes of the ancients to escape climate change. Yeah, so much. And so history. when you look at yeah, when you look at like archaeological research, which I'm not, but I started trying to do a lot of homework on the region just to understand like what it was that I knew what the Silk Road was, but I really didn't. I didn't I didn't understand the Silk Road had been already created as the pathway. So they had oral history of take these trails, follow this, and it will take you to where it's warmer or where it's got more water. But they believe it's really where the hominid and the Neanderthal merged, that the the human being that we have today is this combination of all these genes. And they believe that that's where that took place was this movement and migratory pattern. And so as you go forward into the Roman era, so you go back, you know, 2000 years, you got China creating silk because they had un- they had figured out how to get the silkworm by- byproduct waste to create this this product silk. And the Romans wanted the silk. So the Chinese sent the silk over to over to Europe along the, this existing silk road and it created the word middleman. So like, like it was, I was fascinated, but when people talk about middleman, where you're getting in the middle, middleman didn't have a bad connotation because the Silk Road was so big. China to, to Rome is a big trip that no one group could cover the whole thing. So what you had is entities that covered segments of the Silk Road and the middlemen were the ones who took it and moved it to the next entity. And what happened is you look at the whole Silk Road along it. Every country that touched it, where it passed through, realized that they could create value by taking the things that they had and putting it in the Silk Road to see if they could sell it. And conversely, information and products from Europe would return. And this this went on for centuries until in the Byzantine Empire, they sent thieves into China to steal the silkworm and the technology and it took away China's chokehold on silk. But what China did was China responded like China does with paper and gunpowder. And now paper and gunpowder mm-hmm. poured over again. And this entire thing was was just rolling until the 1400s when the Ottoman Empire, which is Turkey, took over. And they shut the silk route down. And once they shut the silk route down, it's what forced Europe to create the boat routes, to go find the spice routes, the trades. And that's where the Americas were discovered or at least first discovered by those Europeans because who knows who mm-hmm. came here first. Mm-hmm. So it was the impetus to f- go back to that part of the world because you couldn't do it overland anymore because of the Ottoman Empire shutting it down. So the Silk Route connects Asia and Europe and then the next thing you know, Europe now spreads around the world looking for that route back. And the the tenant of the, the Silk Route was fair trade. And you didn't even have really stabilization of the Silk Route until Genghis Khan got in play because Genghis Khan stabilized the safety of the route through his regions so that you didn't have the, the, the marauders and the robbers. And so mm-hmm. like... All these years we've been smoking Hindu Kush and, and we know the Hindu Kush. 
I didn't know that Hindu Kush in, in their language translates to Hindu killer. And it <laughs> meant that the Hindu Kush mountains were filled with villainous killers. And when you went through there, you had to fight for your life to survive. Wow. And so Hindu Kush is really, the Kush mountains really translate to the killer mountains. Wow, that's crazy, and It made me man. think that's where the word the kill came from. When someone says, this is the kill, I said, wait a minute. Like, that's not coincidence. All these words matter. And you start to, like, look at your culture of cannabis and consumption and verbiage. And every time I go to another country that has a historical relevance, I realize how little I know about something I spent my whole life in. And it, it just it just makes you feel like a little kid because you're just like, wow, there's so much more to know. Mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just so different. Eh? Mm -hmm. Crazy shit, man. So I'm sure lots of people listening right now are uh, thinking about booking a trip to Pakistan right now. <laughs> Let's be friends, Pakistan. It, there's there's regions of Pakistan that are very stable. And um, if you get up into any of these mountain communities in the, say, September time, you would see a, a level of beauty that you can't describe. It was like overwhelming. There was a moment we were in one area where I heard this this sound and it was music coming out of the mountains and i was trying to understand where am i hearing the music and what i realized was the wind blowing through those mountains was creating tunes and it blended and it created music wow and it was it was it it, it shocked me when i realized what i was really experiencing and and for a second i couldn't talk I was like mentally frozen. I was overwhelmed in awe at what the wind blowing across rock was doing. And I mean, yeah. it's like, like when a you're spiritual out on the open experience ocean. or something. Yeah. If you ever get out on the open ocean, if you ever go sail across the actual ocean itself, like you're in deep water, there's, there's a sensation of, of what it's like to be in the deep water and how the environment is so impacted by it. And when the sun drops over the horizon, because it's all water, the sun, the light shines through it, but it refracts it. And there's this momentary explosion of light that jumps out of the water at you. And it like when you see it the first time, it's shocking. It's almost like a prism magnified, like a, wow. a prism that, that but, but powered by like a laser because it's so bright and intense and then instantly gone as the sun drops. And it was like that where the first time I experienced being on the deep open sea, when I experienced some of these little details, it was it was so shocking that you're you're almost frozen in it. And when we were in those those mountains where the wind was moving through and it was catching the edges, the sound that was coming out of it was just gorgeous. And I'll just never forget it. I was frozen for a second in awe. Wow, like Shiva connecting with you or something. Mm-hmm. That's fucking awesome, man. Then we went and had yak burgers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just to top it off, you know. <laughs> well, that sounds like a great way to spend the day, man. Damn, it just sounds so beautiful. You know, I'd love to go do it. I have to go do it one day. You do. I, I, you I do. appreciate nature, you know. I would love to go and see that shit. With maybe a little bit of a... Ergot mold, if you know what I'm saying. A little touch of some psilocybin, maybe. Just to enhance oh, that yeah, shit. Yeah, no, the, it would be it would be unbelievable. And mm. 
what you what you have is uh such a such a diversity every time you turn around like an example would be you know as the as the himalayas are relatively young i mean in terms of mountains so they're only like 30 to 50 million years old mm. so you see the aggressive nature of their movement and you can see where the mineral deposits in the earth moved with them so you're cruising along and you're seeing all these color patterns and then all of a sudden you see a change and you realize that that's another mineral deposit. Well, we got into the marble deposits and it was pure white. And we actually went into a marble mine where the Chinese leased property from the, the Pakistanis. And they use these crazy horizontal boring machines to create these like cylindrical holes in the mountain that they extract the marble from and then ship it. So the marble in Pakistan is is world-class but unless you drill it and pull it out it you'll get micro fractures if you use explosions and so the pakistanis when they sell marble it's of a lower quality because of the way they have to use their technology to extract it but the chinese came in and used these horizontal borers and they pull it out and pure but they had just worked a whole section of a mine out and they had left and when we pulled in we went into those horizontal tubes. And so you just walk in, you know, you're walking, I don't know, two, 300 meters into a, a giant, maybe, you know, 20 foot. So like seven meter circum, you know, a diameter tube. Yeah. And it's, it's white. I'm not, I'm not talking a fleck of color and I'm talking, you're walking, you know, for time to get to the end of it. And when you get to the end of it, you turn around and all you see is the light at the end of the tunnel. Fuck. And it's, it's white. It is so white. When you walk back outside and the light hits it, it almost blinds you. It's reflecting so hard. And then yeah. you leave the white mountain and boom, you're going into radically different type uh, rock formations. So it was just never ending undulating patterns of color and, and difference we went down to the river and there's portions of the where the glaciers push through that they have really high level of gold deposit and the the villagers send teams down to the rivers where they live on the river and then the families come in and feed them and what they do is they hand pan for gold and I've never, I've seen people hand pan for gold. I've never seen anybody hand pan for gold and actually pull gold out of a, out of a river. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the important bit, right? <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. I said, that shit's, all, you have a pan of gold. And they were laughing and they said, the river, no matter how hard it flows, the gold is so heavy, it always falls to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And so the gold doesn't make it out to sea. The, the other things do, but the gold deposits. And I got to watch the art of, sifting gold and when he revealed it and, and did that final wash and all you saw was little gold flakes all over this black material you were just the, the light you, hit it right punch him in the face and run off with the tray <laughs> <laughs> that's mine now gold fever <laughs> you know the funny thing is that the, the 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 culture they're sharing even if it means having to give up some of their stuff for you mm. they would it was it was like they don't have the ability to really refuse a request when it's from strangers in these areas. And so what right. you what you want, what you what you're trying to do while you're there is make sure you're not a pain in the ass. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, even the even the team from Lesbian Friends Pakistan and the crew from Land Race Genetics, 
I mean, it was like, I'm laughing. Like I'm used to carrying my own shit, but they're like, no, no, we have to take your bag. Like if you don't let us, it makes us feel like we're failing. And I said, Whoa, I got you. <laughs> and it was, it was just a, such a genuine desire to make sure that you were looked after and tended and cared for that it, it just allowed you to be able to experience like this otherworldly relationship with people. Cause most of society, especially in California and the U S like people aren't that good to strangers. Like I woke up to people in the street when I'm lost, I'm trying to figure out where I'm at in a city or something. And I got my phone and I'm like, it's not Google mapping. Right. And I'm like, I can't figure it out. And I'll ask somebody, Hey, and they look at me and they step away. Like I'm homeless or I'm about to rob them. And I laugh because I have to look at myself in my phone to see how ugly I am at that moment. So I'm like, damn. <laughs> and it's shocking to see the behavioral changes. And it doesn't mean that all the U.S. is like that. But damn, you don't have that same level of of uh, friendliness and concern and care for each other the same way. Mm. And it's weird because, like, you know, everybody looks to America as and we are the cultural influence because every country I go to. They're always under the pressure to change what they do culturally by what the young kids see in America on IG and social media. Mm -hmm. So like Pakistan, what was hot was indoor. And I it blew my mind. The young kids don't smoke hash. Their grandpa smoked hash. Right. What they smoke is indoor grown in Pakistan. So people come into Pakistan, create indoor operations and that shit looked like it came right out of California. And it was, it was, it was like, it was like a gelato hybrid. I was smoking. I was cracking up. I'm like, I can't believe I'm smoking indoor California shit in Pakistan. Mm. But that's what the young kids want because that's what they are influenced by is basically Southern California. So Southern California's vibe affects mm -hmm. the entire world in terms of culture. And I trip on it because we've had really the shortest amount of time or, or, or one of the most, Canada probably too, but our cluster up here has really had very little time to understand the product. And so we have a very, to me, a juvenile view of it. And I didn't understand that until I started to travel and I realized that my own view was juvenile. Mm. Like that's when I understood it. I said, whoa, like I didn't catch that in Colombia there was this duality of of, of, of human where they believe that, you know, you, you are men and women. We both, you X, Y, men have X, Y chromosomes, right? So women, X, 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 Y for us. That means you have both sets. You have, you have a piece of, of another in you and they know that. So what they do is they create a world that's based on that duality. And when it comes to food, it's corn and quinoa. So corn represents the male side of the union. Quinoa represents the female. When you have corn and quinoa, you have basically a complete diet. When you take cannabis, the species, and you combine it with coca, the species, cannabis is the feminine, coca is the masculine, but they're talking about the leaf. They're not talking about, you know, taking it and refining it. And the ability to use coca for them was a bronchial dilator. And it's also, in, it's, as far as the Colombians are concerned, one of the greatest superfoods in the world because the nutrient value and balance in it is unbelievably assimilable by us as people. So they believe that with a bag of cocoa leaf on the pocket, some water, and then a bag of weed, what you'd have is the ability to exist in the mountains, travel, be alert, and then the cannabis connected you spiritually to the world around you. And when I when I started to understand this and I was sitting there going like, whoa, we're, we're barbarians with herb. 
our our exposure is like you know 50 60 years really mm-hmm. my it's lifetime not, it's not as spiritual is it like when you no, say when you're in pakistan it's a different kind of vibe with cannabis it's a spiritual thing it's got so much totally. history and, part of the culture yeah, and 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 the old hippies the old hippies that like that's what was cool is that when i got to humble in in uh, uh i was in the bay area in the 80s and i got up to humble early 90 there was still all these old hippies the original hippies was still here and it was just a, a blessing to be able to be around them because what I got was, and I didn't catch the spirituality as much as I did when I got to hang out with Swami. Swami helped me really understand some of these, these, these connections, but I got to see it. Mm-hmm. So I got to see people living a different lifestyle. And then, and then I, and it made me look at my own lifestyle, like, whoa, for me, you know, herb was like, when I, when I get into herb, it was a full blown felony drug. And I mean, it was, it, it was worse than heroin. So like, if you were a, if you were dealing weed, you had less social value than a heroin dealer because cannabis was was demonized. Like I, I still laugh when I think about the conversations that I used to have when I was young about weed. And so I choose this vocation, but it was drug dealing. But I, I liked weed because I liked the way weed made people behave where other drugs I didn't. And so. If you have to be in something, be where you're happiest. And herb was where I was happiest. But it was it was about money because I was I was poor as a kid. So it's about money. And then I end up catching a case and I catch some time as a kid. And I go in the military and I get out and I go right back into it. But this time in California, but now I'm in the culture. So California was very relaxed compared to the East Coast. And there was this like was way lighter and easier. People still go to prison left and right, but not to the same degree or for the same level of shit in where I was from. And so I started seeing it as like a social thread, but I didn't understand it was a spiritual thread. It, it took me a long time to, of, of just exposure to realize that something in herb makes us as humans become non-judgmental to other humans in consumption. So we don't even have to share the same joint. We just got to share the same space. And if we're consuming, it knocks our, our levels of um, prejudice down. It, it changes comparison. So if the weed is good and you cool, you're cool. I'm not measuring any other variable of you at that moment. I'm just in the, I'm in the moment. And that's when I started realizing that that's the spiritual part of it is that it allows us as humans to transcend our own barriers through the smoke. Mm-hmm. And it allows us to be able to probe each other in a way that's healthy. And if we want to continue the relationship afterwards, we can. But while you're puffing, you you really don't have any problems. And there was there was this was like shit, probably 30 years ago, right? I had I had all these grow houses lit up. And one of them I used to go tend, and it was it was weird because that grow house, the neighbor to the right of me was this was this uh, partner like Andre. He was a black dude, he was a, a coke dealer. And then there was like another brother, but he was Mexican and he was the heroin dealer. And so he had a house where they were moving heroin out of. And, and the other partner, he's got the, the crib with the, with the cocaine sales. And I have this big house that's sealed up. It's really a, a weed grow house. And so we used to meet in the corner of my property in the mornings when I would pull in with my truck. They would come out and wave and I would walk all the way to the corner of the property so that all three of us could touch and we would burn herb together and hang out. 
And then they go back to pushing heroin. He go back to pushing coke, and I would go run the fucking grow house. But one day when I was puffing it, I had this revelation that the reason why this shit's been outlawed is because we're hitting a joint, and we're not hitting each other. Mm-hmm. That the black and the Mexican, the white and the black, the white and the Mexican, we 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 all human beings at that at that exact moment. And and I had spent so many years with diverse people, but the three of us were radically different. In, in the regard of what we did is like drug trade. But the herb let us all for a moment just be ourselves and just laugh about the day and what was taking place. And and we we all we all accepted each other's choices of who we were and what we did. And when the joint was done, you know, we walk away. But there was a moment when I realized that we're hitting the joint and we're not hitting each other. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's when I really started to you know say that herb was this incredibly powerful social thread that weaves people together in a way that's really healthy, and I think that that's one of the things that in America we don't really we don't really look at from the same way. We look at it as more of an escape drug, where we just want to leave the situation. And if you really take a look, that's like the obsession with ultra high potency. It's we want to get the fuck out of our situation right now. We're not mm. trying to get to a place and ride and enjoy. We just mm. want to get to the place. And that place is a full escape. And there's only certain populations that like in the U.S. where you could really sell something that would be quantified as a sativa. Right. So we know sativa is the fucking family. But we're mm-hmm. going to say sativa is a morphology. and It's going to be a narrow leaf drug cultivar. Right. That narrow leaf drug cultivar chemotype based off of that equatorial base and the human selection of it typically gives us more uplifting mental positivity, energy, clarity. If you look at the U S the only places that shit really sells is where there's high tech. And so anywhere where there's coding (laughs) centers or people working in the computer world, when you take a look at, at, at legal store data, every one of those dots is where that shit sells at most velocity. So only a certain group of people in America want mental clarity and they're using it to enhance their work. So they're using it to be able to, you know, you know, get into the coding and then it has to have a little bit of balance on it so that their bodies isn't uncomfortable because they're hunched up, you know, repetitively using their fingers 20,000 times an hour. That that population of cannabis affects that group, but only that group. Everything else in the U.S., no matter where you look, is really all high potency primarily fuel based with some kind of candy on it to sweeten it because most people coming into herb are coming in through vape. So they want the flavor, but they need the power because what they want to do is get knocked the fuck out. So, you know, if you think about it, herb was like three to 5%, maybe 7% THC if we measured it back in the seventies and there's no store you can't go into and buy a pre-roll that's at like 46% because it's been enhanced. You know, they've, they've, they've charged it. (laughs) And so, I I just look back at my whole life and I'm just like, were people unhappy with what they smoked then? And they weren't. And it just means that that herb that came in in the seventies fit the social desires, the human desires of the population. And what we've got is we've got this situation in the U S where to me and generally people can't be that happy because what they want is sedation. So we got 50 million opiate addicts. We got a fucking fentanyl problem. That's just ripping cities to pieces. So when you got heroin out of control and you got fucking fentanyl out of control and all the herb is narcotic, it just lets you know that like that's the tone of 
the the world we're in and it's unfortunate because what it does is it forces the development genetically of only those type of varieties so we're not mining into other things and and bringing it forward and putting it out into the public so when you go into a store there's like 40 varieties but if they tell you it's a sativa that means that shit's taken you know 70 days not 62 Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it's going to give you what you want. You almost have yeah. to find that shit on the exterior. Mm-hmm. You're going to find it from from home growers. Yeah, yeah, man. That's the best place to get the weed. We encourage everybody to grow their own if it's possible. Oh, 100%. that's where you're going to get the best shit. Yeah, you can make yeah, it yourself. Well, and make it work for yourself. Mm-hmm. You can afford it. You can yes. afford it. Like mm-hmm. that's the real issue. So, like for us, you know, when you remember, I, I've had stores for 15 years, right, and. And for me, I've always been this advocate. I mean, I fought for all the home grow rights in California. We fought for the medical rights in Humboldt. We f- I just had this conversation, but we fought for all the medical advantages because what happened was the the county said they wanted to, they wanted to cut all medical cannabis out. We want to follow federal uh, rules. Well, I went and researched that shit, and what I found was I found that only data you can use in America comes out of the drug institutes that did the work in Mississippi, and they found how much cannabis an individual needs to grow to give them the amount that you would use medically under reasonable circumstances. Mm-hmm. And it came out where the average individual needs about 200 square foot of canopy. So you need, you know, a, 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 a 10 by 20, which would be like, you know, three meter by seven meter. And so that amount of canopy, the federal government said is the amount and they use that to create how many joints that they would give a patient. So I researched all that back data and then I brought it into the county. And when I said to him, I said, okay, what we want to do is follow federal guidelines with medical cannabis, correct? Mm -hmm. And the county said, correct, we're going to follow federal guidelines. Well, then I broke out the federal guidelines and they had no choice but to comply. (laughs) And (laughs) Oh, my fucking lawyer was in tears. He was like, oh, you're a researching motherfucker. And... (laughs) But what it did was it allowed there to be medical canopy and people couldn't understand why I was fighting for it when I had a store. And I was like, because I'm from the old days of you need, you, you need control of your own weed supply. And what you want to be able to do is remove the money component as much as possible, because it's money that stops most people from using weed freely. You can't afford it. You can't go to a fucking dispensary. Mm-hmm. I own a goddamn dispensary. If I go to a dispensary and I buy grass from the dispensary, I'd go fucking broke mm-hmm. buying weed enough to smoke. Yeah. You can't share it with anybody because it's costing too damn much. Whereas in California, you have an ounce sharing rule that says anytime I bump into somebody, I can give an ounce of grass. So like when I grow my home medical garden, which is legal in addition to my six California legal, I barrel that shit and put it up in my cold storage in my garage. And what it does is it, it gives me enough grass that when friends come by, I can say, Hey, it's a Ziploc bag and a Sharpie. The bins are labeled. Go grab me some weed. <laughs> Cause I'm not selling the shit. Right. And mm-hmm. I can't smoke this much pot, but I'm a, I've been a dope growing my whole life. So there's no fucking way I'm not going to grow the amount that I can grow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and I just I think that all all people should have that right. 
And, and that's why we fought for it so heavily in county. And then we, I went at it medically with California. So California, we locked in all medical rights so that you can't remove them via legality. So like Washington state, what they did was they had a, a thriving medical um, program. They create legalization. But then they said, we're going to wipe the medical program out because there's no need. And really, it was driven by tax revenue. If you were in medical, you paid less tax. Therefore, the stores didn't make as much money. Therefore, the government didn't get as much tax extraction. So they completely wiped out the whole medical program. And then they had all your addresses. They went to your mm -hmm. fucking house and checked you out. So it was this crazy persecution and I saw it happen. And the group in San Francisco that put the original medical cannabis came in and they were getting older and they asked me, they said, Hey, you know, you feel young, you're in your forties. Could you help us do this? Could you help us fight to create a true medical program that is, a, that is fucking law in California. And we did, and we succeeded. So what it does is it gives us medical rights that, so like in California, I could have an ounce in my pocket, if I have uh, uh, California, you know, I mean, California, I'm over 21, I can have an ounce of weed. No cop can stop me, get me in any trouble, nobody. But if I have two ounces, I can catch a felony as a cannabis Fuck. owner. So, like, if you take a look at, go online and go check out Connected, right? They're a brand. They're a big fucking brand. The owner gets in a plane in, like, Sacramento, has two ounces on him, catches a fucking felony enhancement because he has a California uh cannabis license so he catches a felony catches a fucking case catches the, the the ankle monitor over over and this is in 2020 fucking three and 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 it, it couldn't be any crazier but for me as a medical marijuana card holder i can have eight ounces in my pocket completely legal i can have in my yard i can have 400 square foot of canopy for my acreage size no nope. how you fitting eight ounces in your pocket though <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got big pockets. That's yeah. it, big, big pockets. Hikers. That's it. But it base. also lets me have like you know almost like an ounce of concentrate, whereas with mm. medical, you know, if you're if you're legal, you have like a gram of concentrate. And if you go and get the state card, which just means that they go and they look at your medical and then they just validate that that's you, that's an official medical, and the doctor just sends them the paperwork. It lets you get. Um, cheaper prices at dispensaries across the state period. They just, they have to give you a reduced tax rate. Right. So we fought for all this shit so that there would be some form of reasonable ability for people that don't have lucrative incomes to fucking enjoy weed. It, it, it got so expensive that, you know, how do you, how do you use it? And if you are in certain circumstances like pain management, you're needing to smoke, you know, every hour, hour and a half. That means you're smoking 10 joints a day or you're vaping X amount a day. You can't do that shit through the dispensary. You have to rely mm -hmm. on compassion programs. And we ran them and it was just brutal to see people. I mean, I just remember this one old lady that came in and <clears throat> and she came in and, they, and the compassion program, um, you would just ask, is there any compassion today? And she had got there late. And there was no official herb to give her in the store through the program. And I was just, I'd come out of my office and I came down into the floor and I was standing there talking to the staff and the guy that was talking to was a really good dude. But his, his answer to her question was, we have no compassion today. And she sat down on the floor and cried. Oh, lame. And I sat there and I was just like, what the fuck, man? Like, 
it was it was it was profound because I sure as fuck didn't expect to see a breakdown like that. And the answer was so real. We have no compassion because you can't give all the herb away. You grow it a business. So you're fucking out of business. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is I created at that facility that I managed, I created my own compassion program on top of the official compassion program where we started tying in with all kinds of other growers like me that were like historically larger than normal. And we made sure there was always herb hidden at my fucking in my office that when they we ran out, there was never not herb to provide the people that were in that case, because I can still see that old lady sinking down on the floor and just fucking weeping. And I was like, whoa, we can't do this shit. So, I mean, I went to my went to my car and grabbed my own fucking grass and went out to her and said, hey, look, here's a bag of weed, sis. It's OK. Let us try to make the program more effective for people like you, because she had real need and there was just no way to satisfy it. And so those experiences in medical cannabis changed me from what I used to believe cannabis to be and how we used to work and deal with it to really what I realized it was needed was for so many, it's a true medicine that without it, their life is mm -hmm. impacted so negatively that there's no replacement. Yeah. And for me, it's a, a quality of life enhancer. But if I don't have herb for a couple of days, I don't fucking break down and have like real problems. I don't have mental yeah. issues. I'm not having, you know, I'm a fucking nut every day. Mm -hmm. So you have it because you enjoy it, no, not necessarily need it. Yeah. And I believe yeah. that like I need the enjoyment. But for some of the people, what I learned was it was a critical component to their life because mm -hmm. it allowed them to eat food. It allowed them to sleep. It removed depression. It allowed them to turn off the mental flow. Yeah. It gave them. It gave them what they needed that they couldn't get from pharmaceuticals. And for so many, they had been heavily pharmaceutically treated for years. And what had happened is the body started to reject the medicine because it, it was organ damage. Mm. And so what and, and I mean, I'm getting this education from the people because I'm speaking to them and I'm asking, like, why is you are you so emphatic about what you want here? And they would come in and show me the number of pills they have been on prior and how they had replaced all these pills with cannabis. And they said, this is my problem. I have this issue. I take this medicine. But when you take this medicine, it creates this problem. So I have to take this medicine. That medicine creates this problem and I have to take this medicine. And so you end up taking like six different things to, to deal with the one problem you have. And each one of those things are a toxin in some degree. And over the course of time, it loses not just its efficacy, but it also becomes a contaminant. And that's when I really started to understand the complexity of herb in its in its bigger picture of just how vital it was as a homeopathic medicine for so many. And to me, it's a human right to have it. So even though mm -hmm. I have a storefront, I'd rather if every single person that bought herb from me had their own grow as well. Mm -hmm. And you only came in to buy what you needed that you couldn't get. Yeah, that's it. Like now and again, you might. I, I'm sitting here. I got forbidden strawberry, but if I'm like, hmm, really fancy some purple haze today, you go down and you pick up a little bit of purple haze. But you know, you've got your backup supply of whatever you've grown. But it's nice to have the opportunity to go out there and try different things. You know, go grab a little oh, 100%. piece of ash. You know, yeah, things you can't produce, and mm -hmm. so we can make a lot of stuff. But like, you know, if you really like some high quality um, extract. It's a little expensive because, you know, mm -hmm. when you're talking about like a modern extract, you're, you're freeze drying it so you can capture the cold. You're capturing all the metabolites that are that are temperature sensitive. 
And so a freeze dryer is going to cost you like, you know, five grand if you got mm-hmm. a, a good pump on it. And then you're going to need a, a rosin press. And so now you're talking another, say, thousand for a good press. So all of a sudden you're into this six grand to just make the product. And yes, you'll be able to, you know, have this, but then you got to learn how to work, walk it. You got to make mm-hmm. your wash. You got to have the space. You got to have the ability. And at the end of the day, do you smoke that much of that product? And if you do, then you amortize that cost over time. And you say, okay, I've got my consumption down to like three bucks a day versus 30 bucks a day. But if you're only smoking a little bit, it makes better sense to spend 30 bucks and spend, you know, seven grand on all the equipment to make yeah. really top quality rosin. Mm-hmm. And buy a lot yeah. of rosin for seven grand. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you get down to it, that's what it costs. So like, I like to make hash. I mean, I've been making hash for years, but I don't consider myself a hash maker at all because, um, every like from I'm a I'm from a trades background and in trade background you, you you're a specialist at something so you can be a general contractor but you usually have a speciality and in that thing you have a good developed skill set and you're comfortable with it and if you're comfortable with it and you had to work to get it it means you respect every other skill set so just because I know how to run Romex doesn't make me an electrician and so just because I know how to extract resin from 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 leaf doesn't make me a true hash master, because to me, that's where that's what you do. You mm. spend every day making hash. And so I think I make good hash. But what I do is I wait and I make it in the wintertime when it's cold outside. And this way, what I'm able to do is I'm able to take the material and do all the work in like 40 degree weather. Oof. And so it lets me do the wash and it lets me do the dry and it lets me do all of it in this drier, you know, colder climate. So mm-hmm. I don't have to go spend five grand on a freeze dryer because mm-hmm. I just like, do I really need that? And I don't. And and I, what I want is I want a really good quality hash. And I can actually, I think, with, like from experience going all directions, for me personally, when we capture too much of the volatile, it makes the high edgy. It makes you like, it, ma- it moves you. And for me at my age, I want a little smoother feel. I don't want to be rocked with it so much. So it's the delivery. The cannabinoids are pretty much consistent, but the volatiles that we capture from frozen, when you concentrate and put them in, it's that that's the delivery system. That's kind of like the highway and it's delivering the the drug effect. And for me, some of that intensity isn't as balanced as I'd like it to be. And when I was younger, I seemed to enjoy it more but I enjoy it less now that I'm older. Mm-hmm. So regular hash without the freeze drying, but just well-made, good extractable plants, keep it cold when you grab it and then reduce it in the cold and then don't heat it while it's being dried. And then and then that product to me gives me like a really balanced killer effect. So I like to make, you know, temple balls of that and then I can bust into them throughout the year. Oh, right. Nice. How many temple balls do you make? Do you have like a collection of them? Depends. It depends on what I'm washing and what I'm doing. And so sometimes like I was, uh, it's it, when you'd see, this is where the home grower comes in. Mm-hmm. You can go make products that you can't fucking buy. So a couple of years back, what I wanted was I wanted African Congo hash. So I had this Roberts Creek Congo plant that was phenomenal Congolese plant. 
But what I wanted was hash from that so I could experience that as a concentrate. And we're talking like, you know, 0.8 yield kind of shit. So you're getting, you know, like percentage-wise. So you're not getting a fucking lot of resin out of these things that are going to wash well. But So I washed a fucking monstrous plant just to create that product. And it gave me a couple golf balls. But golf balls that I just finished, and that was probably like two, three years ago, I just finished the last of those golf balls because just a little peel off of it exploded. Yeah. And yeah. the high was fucking searing. I mean, like, it was just this pulsing, throbbing. You, you, your, your hair would rise up on your arms and on, on my back too. <laughs> I'm hairy, right? So my, the hair on my back would rise up, and and I just loved the way it delivered. But it was thicker and more balanced because of the aging and and the way it had been made. And so, what's kind of cool too is I'm in a region where everybody's making hash, everybody's growing weed. So I get to produce product that I like, and then I get to share it with other farmers who grow their own home grow too. And we all get to trade hash balls. And so, you know, you'll throw somebody a, a, a big marble of something and they'll throw you something back and you'll just take a Sharpie and write on the, the seal what it was who gave it to you. And then you just throw it in your your, uh, your, your storage. Damn. And all of a sudden, you, you and sometimes you forget you have it and you're digging through your cold storage <laughs> and you're like, oh, and you get all happy like a little kid and you're dancing and then you go smoke it. And because you haven't smoked that profile recently, it just fucking nails you. Yeah, and you so stop dancing. Spoon- <laughs> yeah, you're spooning in love, man. It's like, yeah, a new romance. Mm-mm. So it's it's a it's a it's a it's a gift to be able to live in a place where you can do that. Yeah. And for indoor, it's expensive, but for outdoor, with especially, you know, you can do your six, but everyone I know. We, there is no medical qualification. No doctor is qualified to tell you that cannabis is right or wrong for you. You mm-hmm. alone have to determine that. You have to use the product and say, does it or does it not enhance my situation? And when you're using it in that regard for homeopathic health, that's fucking medicine. You're using it as a product to increase the quality of your well-being. And so to me everyone should go and get a a medical card and it's they're 35 bucks so a 35 dollar license a year lets me have you know a 400 square foot canopy so that's you know three meter by nine meter so a three by nine yeah in my fucking yard legally now i could i could have every government agency come in and it's completely even the feds because the feds (laughs) have a relationship with states that have programs where as long as the state's program is operating under the auspices it should, the Fed will not get involved in it. And is all I have to do then is make sure that I don't play fuck around. And fuck around just means I could go get some enhancements and say that I have to bathe in cannabis juice. So therefore I need to have three times the normal amount. I don't do that. I just make sure that I have the amount that lets me have zero fucking issues where every drug task force could come in my yard. And when they see the paperwork and they see that I've clearly measured out the area, that's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the, that's the fucking end of it. And I can have all of that weed in my house. So I don't have a limit. We, we, we created no limits on how much you can hold. Nice. So 
That's good. Yeah, because six plants in California could give you fuck, fuck. You can get 60 <laughs> pounds. Mm -hmm. I know. That's just it, man. Six, right? How so, big are six plants? Yeah. Huge. You want to see the ones. We're yeah. talking for own thing. I, I, I get probably like, I like the ones I get for my own head are like a pound and a half, too. Yeah. Because I don't need 60 goddamn pounds. And 60 right. pound plants are a pain in the ass to grow because I'm, I'm fucking short. So when I start getting over six feet and shit, I got to get up on a stage, you know? So I want something that's, you know, seven feet and then, you know, cylindrical. Uh, but, and never mention it. You don't mention the trimming. There yeah. And, and, and a lot of it is, well, we, you know, if it's yours and you're not selling it, all you're really doing is you're cutting the plant, you're hanging it, and then you basically rough bucket to where you're breaking it off and you're breaking off all your major fans, but you're leaving all your small finger leaves. And what it does then is then I take it and they make these um, giant turkey bags and they also mm -hmm. make these lawn bags that are sealed inside with the material. And I put those inside containers and then I can just put the herb in it, but I don't compress it. And then I let it sit in the space and off gas and stabilize because like when you cure an herb, you can cure the room. You don't got to cure the bag. So if I control the room environment, I'm controlling the bag environment. Okay. So I just control the room environment. It lets everything in the space breathe naturally. And then once I get to where I think I have stability and everything is right, I can then seal that barrel up and keep it cool. And that shit's going to stay good for time. And so then when I want to break it out, I just break it out. And then you just, if you want to, you know, uh, uh, clean it up, you just take a, you know, your scissors and you knock a few leaves off and now it's ready to be ground or, or, you know, you, but that way it doesn't, it's not laborious. So me and my uh, relatives, we sit down and just buck all this stuff up, bend it all up. And now we have herb for a whole family for a year. And when mm -hmm. people come by to visit that don't have what we have, we can say, Hey, um, you seem to really like that particular batch. Well, in the garage, that's fucking labeled. And here's a Sharpie and here's a Ziploc bag and go grab you a big handful. Yeah, and then you get people holding handfuls of weed, and and they almost want to cry because mm -hmm. to them that would be probably you know six hundred, eight hundred bucks, right? Right, and and, and to a grower, it's nothing. Bucks? Yeah, yeah no, to a grower, it's just what we do. It. Yeah, the sun grew it, and the and the mm -hmm. earth did the work. So like me, yeah. me, I'm just there kind of helping out, but I'm not doing it. Indoor is different. Indoor requires an investment in infrastructure. And mm -hmm. nonstop fixed and and a, a variable costs. So indoors is a different animal. But when you're growing really good outdoor and you're you're not trying to you're, you're being smart about it. You're identifying what plants work really well in your environment, and you're making sure that there's a diversity of it within it, so that you get the different populations you want to consume. You know, and and it's this it's this process. And some things you just can't grow here at our at our 39 latitude. But if you go through enough population, you'll find outliers that always have a little mm -hmm. more resistance or they finish a little earlier. So I got lucky that I found a really nice uh, C5 Hayes Cambodian three hybrid from uh, Scott Family Farms. I got some stock from Charles years ago. And I went through the population and found this killer Colombian Cambodian that just absolutely worked here. And that shit was good. Like I still got a bunch of that sitting. And it's just nice. got this lucid high, but it, it grabs you like it's it's and you know the thing is you couldn't sell it doesn't have the right visuals so you wouldn't be able to sell it in today's market only only dope smoking freaks <laughs> would would really be able to understand it but when people come to visit the house and they're all smoking and they go man that's the shit i really liked 
Mm-hmm. They don't give a fuck what it looks like and they don't care that it's open structure. They don't care yeah. that it's that it's not colored the right way. What they know is that the flavor was on point and the high was absolutely what they desired. Mm-mm. Can't beat that sun-grown shit, you know? It's just so natural the way nature intended, man. It it is it's it's and, and the truth is that like you what you find is you got to remember that that all these modalities all occurred from like necessity and uh, illegality, right? So you know, mm-hmm. greenhouse technology in in your area, Holland, has been around for hundreds of years because you can't grow tropicals without capturing climate. Mm-hmm. And so what you have is this development of things that shine in those environments, and they just do. And when you move that plant to another environment, it doesn't work as well. So some things developed for indoor are absolutely incredible. And when you consume them, you're like, damn, that's really good. And then there's things that come out of greenhouse operations that have been developed for mixed light and they're really good. And then there's things that are outdoor that are really good. And so there's, there's awesome in every category. I just personally, as a smoker prefer outdoor more because it's more of a thicker, fuller flavor. The the stress of being outside makes the plant produce a little heavier in a certain certain directions. And as a consumer, so to me, it's more like the difference between a cigarette and a cigar. And so I'm more of a cigar smoker than a cigarette smoker. And to me, outdoor is more like a cigar. It's more mouthfeel. It's this thicker smoke. It's oilier. It has more waxes. The burnability is better. When you light good outdoor up, that joint doesn't go out for a while. You can you can smoke and put it down and go in the other room and come back and that shit's still burning. It's because of all the waxes and fats that the plant had to produce to live in the environment. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, that's heavier than they like. And if you look at like wine populations, you know, 80% of the people like a lighter wine and only 20% like a really heavy, thick, full cab. But the reality is it's in those thick, full, heavy wines that you have by far the absolute highest price point. So the people who really, really, really drink wine and love wine, they gravitate to these more profound positions as they mature in palate. And that's kind of how I saw outdoor as I, as I knew outdoor as a kid, grow outdoor. And then we go into the indoor era for me, like around 89, right? So indoor era from that point forward. And when I started experiencing outdoor from hippies that were doing biologically grown plants that they had bred to to thrive in the environment was when I really started to get this differentiation. And it was kind of like the first time I got to smoke a living soil indoor. And that shit would have been in the mid 90s. But it was the same thing. It was this old greasy looking hair dude. Look like he hadn't had a bath in a year. But goddamn, he could grow some unbelievable weed. And I used to buy pot from him and I had operations everywhere. And people used to trip out and they're like, why do you buy herb from the greasy hippie when you have all these operations? And I said, I'm going to be honest. I said, the guy's fucking better grow than I am. He absolutely grows some of the tastiest pot. And it was because he was using biological soil delivery. Mm. And so it was the first time it, it starts to help you just quantify what's real and what's not to you. So I don't tell other people that they have to follow my preference, but I just know that I understand why I have a preference and I can fucking explain it. It's not just, I don't know why I like it. I just do. What I know mm-hmm. is biologically driven outdoor gives me a different type 
of resonance in the high. It's not that I don't get as high from an, in, an indoor. I actually get higher in some degrees, but I get higher in a single spike. It's mm -hmm. not an even plane. So like I'd say indoor goes a little bit above, but outdoor is way more nuanced in its breath. And it holds that quality longer. And then you come out of it more gradually where indoor is more like smoke and resin where you hit it and you hit the fucking ceiling and then you come right back out of that shit. Mm -hmm. So you blow up and blow down. And so you end up having to puff more of it to maintain a level. And for me as a, as like a smoker, what I get is a, a, a really good lift and then a really good high, but a broad developed band of high and then a really good come down that comes out of it. And so for my smoking needs and what I like as, as herb, that's kind of where I try to spend most of my time. But I use indoor to do development. The, the facility runs indoor for R&D. And I, I always run a indoor for seed making and R&D through the winter so I can play with stuff for summertime. But mm -hmm. what I try to produce is all my weed for the year from my outdoor garden. Oh, that, that would, and it's so cheap as well. Massively <laughs> cheaper than indoor grow. Stupid. Oh, it's unreal. And it's when like you grow you pay for seeds. Yeah, yeah, you can smoke the fuck out of it. You're able to smoke <laughs> weed all the time. You're able to you're able to live with weed the way herb was originally intended, where it was mm -hmm. just a, a product that was available in the area and people partook and enjoyed. Like even like Pakistan, right? The consumption of the product in Afghanistan too, the consumption of the product goes along with like the tea and the prayer. So they pray multiple times through the day. So the first prayers in the morning, last prayers before uh, like at, at dusk, and it kind of creates the rhythm of the cycle through the day. And each time you pray, you take a break from the work and you have tea and they would smoke hash. And it, it's it allows there to be the rhythm of the human, because when you don't get a break, you break down. And so if you're in these hard conditions and you're doing physical labor, you need to have a break. And so the prayer is for thankfulness. The T is for, for um, uh, like appreciation because you, and you're, you're getting value from the liquid and the herbs, but it's this appreciation of this moment where you get to sit and sip the tea. And then the hash brings you together and numbs the fact that you're doing hard labor. So they wove <laughs> all these things together in this really fascinating matrix. And you get to see these rhythms of consumption and he would say, you know, that they're, you're, you're burning. I'd probably say that the, the patty that they would light up in the day, you might go through like an ounce of hash a day with a group of people, you know, patting it up, breaking it, circling. There was no, there was no restriction. It wasn't like, here's a little piece of hash. It was like, open up the bag and you open up this giant ball of, of dry sift and you rip it open and pull a chunk out and then roll and spire it up. It mm -hmm. was so natural. And, and in Pakistan, I want to say the key price is like around 150 bucks for like premium dry sift. So, you know, you, you're paying 150 bucks for 2.2 US pounds of hash. Fuck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it wouldn't go for 200 bucks if it wasn't in Pakistan. That mm -hmm. shit would sell in, in the States. For people who wanted that type of traditional product, like I would buy that. Yeah, for sure. Mm, yes. um, so when you when you were in Pakistan, you were searching for certain genetics, I assume, right, for, for seeds? Not really. As odd as that sounds, what I was there for was to to hang out with the land race team 
and look at plants with them. But I didn't right. have a genetic hunt in mind. It wasn't like I was there to gather my own stock. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have a lot of stock. It was, it was more of, I wanted to be with the, the Pakistanis looking at stock with them through their eyes. All right. And I ended up collecting some gorgeous shit that I brought back, but that really wasn't the, the incentive. It was more of the, of the incentive to be with people in the nation of origin who look at this from their own vision of how they see crops. Because you gotta remember this shit's wild in Pakistan. So every time you see any depression in the earth, there's fucking herb growing out of it everywhere you looked. So it's a crop that's been there for 4,000 years, right? Mm -hmm. So how do they see the plant? What to them is outliers? What, what words do they use to describe? So I really wanted to hang out with them and they were bringing me in to bring value to what they did, but I didn't think they needed it. And when I got there, they definitely didn't need it. So they didn't need me to do shit. They knew what they were doing. What they did is they got to hang with me and we got to go like play hunt. And I got to experience what it was like to look at ungodly populations of cannabis and found outliers. And we started noticing some really cool patterns of the, the relationship between the type of farm and the profiles in the cannabis. And you started being it because I have it all journaled. And so I was like, whoa, you would see, you know, crops that grew pomegranate had different flavor profiles than the crops that grew potatoes. But we would look at multiple pomegranate crops, multiple potato crops, and then there would be a half acre, quarter acre cannabis next to it, part of the farmer's crop. And we would start to notice the patterns of similarity. And then we would also notice the weird outliers that would pop out. And it was the weird outliers that I was looking for. I was looking for stuff with them that absolutely, because that was what they were asking. What are the things that would best resonate in other markets? And so I said, look, I'll use... <clears throat> excuse me i'll use the u.s market as the 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 base and what we'll do is we'll identify things that i think would resonate in the u.s specifically in hybridization because very few things that you pull in from other places can you sell in the u.s market as it is we're fixated on visual we're fixated on specific colors we're fixated on cannabinoid percentages so in mm -hmm. legal markets, you really have a very narrow lane of what can fit in. But through work I had done with um, the, the group out of Afghanistan and India, um, they had, they, they, that group and myself had, had done a lot of, of work with um, sharing genetics. And then I take those genes and then I clean them up a little bit indoor to make sure there's no intersex traits. And then I then create an open population from the group that's remaining and then I give them out to craft farmers so that what we can do is create like living gene banks. So that way the general public can get access to shit they couldn't get access to. And it allows people to go buy the stock from the groups that sell the stock, which is needed to sustain the work they do at the villages. And so what I do is I just do my end of it for free and, and, and share it. So what it does, it gets interest and then people can then go back to where you really want to buy more of it or new and start to really understand that as a cannabis community, we're global, that being able to preserve genes in the way you are, is it identical? No, because it's going to start to take on, on epigenetic influence from moving it. But the idea that we're trying to preserve pieces and we're trying to share and we're trying to 
give value to all facets of the cannabis plant because it has value that to me, that's like critical for cultural preservation and genetic preservation. And so what I know is that when you go work with plants from any country, that's not in a developed movement where it's being really quantified through lab, the best thing to do is create populations that are pure that you bank. And then you find outliers that have traits that are just really off the hook and you hybridize those into other plants. Hmm. And so it allows you to bring, you know, bring, bring, you know, bigger resin heads, better abscission layer break profiles that you just don't see because we've necked our profiles down. Um, resiliency, resistance, uh, just coloration, things that are just interesting. And so everything that was a super outlier, we would note and then chop the plant. And we're driving around with a pickup truck filled with trash bags filled with weed. So, I mean, it was a, still like a cartoon, right? This giant, we got a convoy of rigs, but one of them is the weed. <laughs> and then every night when we got to a, a, a stopping point, me and the team would take each trash bag and open it up and then break down all the herb. And because it was so dry at night and cold, you started having the plants desiccate down. And eventually by the time we got to Lahore, we were down to, you know, a shopping cart filled with bags of all individually labeled seed that we finally cleaned up. So uh, that's a lot plant. of seeds. Oh, it was crazy, man. We had, we would cut each plant, but some of the plants, when you try to break the plant apart, you couldn't rip a branch off. It was so lignified. It was so tough. The epidural layer wow. was almost sharp, almost cut your hands when you touched it. It was plants that had developed without any kind of coddling if it didn't work that shit got killed mm -hmm. and so you got to see resistance and and stunning unique profiles you know rich purple bubble gums chemical hairspray um vomit <laughs> sickness with sweet in the back that when you move the plant mm. a whole field filled with it and that vomit it's weird but vomit Vomit is the same in vomit. You have the same scent compound as you have in cheese, methyl butyric acid, methyl butyrate. And so Delicious. mammals, <laughs> yeah. And mammals have been programmed to go after methyl butyrate because when you vomit, you vomit it out of food source. And so that's why you see dogs puke and then eat it again, because to them, the smell that comes with it is an attraction and it makes them eat it. It's the same with us. And so Hershey's chocolate identified that. And Hershey's chocolate adds methyl butyrate to the chocolate. And that's why, like, yeah, no, and I'm serious. I'm addicted to cheap-ass Hershey's chocolate oh, compared man. to, like, a gourmet chocolate because I've been exposed to the methyl butyrate chocolate my whole life. Mm. And to me, that's what I associate as good chocolate. And so that disgusting smell of vomit is the same molecule that's in really rank cheese, and we're programmed to go after it. So it was weird. We were cracking up, man. We were... The smells coming out of this shit was, was filling a field. Like when you shake one plant and it wipes out 10,000 other plants, it's an outlier. Oh. It, it, oh, it was crazy. So we collected all the stock. And then what I did is I just kind of helped them in terms of like what, what they were selecting for is what they liked. And they had X of the boys, Hami and Numi and Kashi. And then the, the crew that I was with, which was um, Jamie and, and Imran, they were all excellent hunters, right? Everybody had skills. And all we really did was look for the outliers that we would find and notice 
And it was cool because anytime any one of us found something really unique, the others could agree that it was. So what you had was the land race team had their shit together. The boys that had come over from the other countries had their shit together. And I got to hang out with these guys and just enjoy hunting and looking at varieties with people who are really seasoned. So if you, it, and it's not that it's not fun to go with people who aren't, it's just that if you haven't seen a million plants, outliers are kind of hard to define because if you're new to cannabis, everything's pretty fire. But when you've touched it for a long time and you've touched a lot of it and you've touched it from a lot of places, you can start to say, yeah, these are pretty good, but I think there's better examples of this profile. But hmm. when you find something that redefines a profile, or you find something that there was some plants that produced so much essential oils that when I rushed into it, it wet my whole arm. And I looked up and said, damn, we must have had rain. And I'm, I'm like, wait a minute, there's no rain. We're in a fucking desert. It, it, and, I, and I did it multiple times in the fields and it was a very similar plant. But that, that gene was cycling in these fields and it expressed itself in limited population density. But whenever you bumped up against it, it literally wet your arm and you looked at it and the whole thing glistened. And I don't mean like you got some resin on it. This shit was like, like liquid water. And so yeah. I, I made sure we got that one. You know, it, because that mm -hmm. stuff is just, that's killer. It's terrible for hash, but phenomenal for joint. Mm -mm. God damn, man. It just sounds like an awesome time to just head out to Pakistan, go take these journeys. What was the name of the company again? Let's Be Friends Pakistan. You can go on IG and hit them up. And Sweet. then Land Race Genetics is uh, uh, friends of theirs that do the, the cannabis hunting. And so... The, the the groups are all friends and they just absolutely wanted to show the world Pakistan in a better way that's been portrayed. Mm -hmm. And it was such a good time that I'm like, damn, I wish I lived closer. It was like, you know, I want to say it took us 13 and a half hours to go from LA to Dubai and then Dubai to Pakistan was probably three and a half. So you got like, you know, 16 and a half, 17 hour journey. So it's a trip. But um, it, it was beautiful. Go there in like September, you know, and because and, there'll be hash. You can mm. see the crops, but you'll you'll be able to access smoke. But mm. the weather will be stunning. It'll be warm. You I mean t-shirt weather, shorts, and you're in the Himalayas. You're in the you know you're 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 in you're in the top of the world. Like it's so. I never understood what that meant. Like I understood it was a mountainous region. I and I and I've been all over the world with mountains. I realized that I've never seen a real mountain until I was there. You know, I was uh, like, I've been on oh. foothills. Humboldt, yeah, Humboldt to me was mountainous. <laughs> no, these are more like little, little kitty hills. That mm -hmm. shit was like something out of fantasy land. And every time you turned around, you saw another peak exploding over the top of the other ones. Damn. And the Silk Route tracks you all through this. You take the Kurukuram Highway. And uh, the Kurukuram Highway was like the original Silk Road. And in the 60s, in Vietnam wartime, America abandoned Pakistan as a like a financial supporter. And China became Pakistan's financial supporter and helped Pakistan survive that transition. And what occurred was that China said to Pakistan, hey, if we had a better road that moved through, we would have been able to help you better. And so they looked at creating this Korakoram Highway 
and they laughed and said it's impossible though but the pakistanis took it on themselves and they call it like the eighth wonder of the world because it's the highest paved road in the world and when you're on it you can't believe uh, it, it's the place where you never take your eyes off the road man there was a landslide we come over the ridge and you see where these boulders come down like you know 2000 feet and blow a wall right out you can see where uh. there's been landslide shit but I've never seen, I didn't see any of it. We come around a corner and it was a beautiful sunny day. And all it was, was the whole road was this fine white powdery mist. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, they must be doing demolition or jackhammer or something. But I don't hear any noise. And we're, still, we're chilling for a second because we can't drive because you can't see anything. And as all the mist settles, I look over to the side. And right next to the car where we were was a, a rock the size of a refrigerator that had fallen from space and had landed on a wheelbarrow. And the wheelbarrow uh. was all mangled and just the pieces were poking out. And I realized that this just happened and that's where all that dust came from. And if we had been a couple seconds earlier and a couple feet over, that shit would have hit me right where I was sitting. Jesus. And I said, holy shit, that's real. So then we're driving and it gets a little darker. And all of a sudden all these cars are backed up and we get out. And there was another landslide that completely sealed off the road. And so all the Pakistani dudes uh, hopped out and they cleaned the road and everybody got out of the vehicles and each vehicle would go by itself so that if it went over the side of the mountain and fell a thousand feet, only the driver would die. So we're, and it was just such a normal approach to life. They were like, okay, if we have to lose someone, let's just lose one. Man, it all sounded so good until a couple of minutes ago. And now I don't want no, to go it was anymore. Okay. You know? <laughs> no, it was okay because you don't you don't have to go that far, right? So, like, remember, we're traveling three thousand kilometers. Mm -hmm. So, if you don't go through some of these transition routes, you don't have to deal with some of this unbelievable verticality in on the road. Yeah, and it it was so it was interesting because it helps you understand the the attitude of mountain dwellers about the fragility of life and how things matter. It was kind of like when I was hanging out with my Japanese partner and they were explaining to me the concept behind uh, Japanese culture where in the feudal era, it was so violent and so dangerous that you could die at any moment through war. And what it did is it created a culture of people who were very polite and what they said had weight because it might be the last time you saw that person or the last thing they heard from you. And what mm. they wanted was they wanted those words to have meaning and they didn't want to be seen in a negative light. And so Japan forms this supernaturally polite society based off of the realization that that might be the last shit that comes out of your mouth. And so the, 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 the landslide that we got to see and then the one that we saw rolling down, it just helped me understand so much of why the people in the mountains are so kind and good to each other. Because the mountains are so massive and powerful that if you didn't have help to clear the road, you'd be stuck. Mm. And it was absolutely unreal. So, yeah, no, you don't have to go through any dangerous shit. We just covered an unusually large portion. And I mean, we went, we went, we went at it. But you could come in to Islamabad, then head over to like Hunza. And it would be totally safe. And the Hunza Valley is considered one of the places in the world where Humans, you know, have this exceptionally long life. So there was many people that have been recorded to live over 120 years. Mm. It, there, matter of fact, we ate dinner there with some villagers 
And when the food came out, it came out in this big pot. And I thought it was like a metal pot because it was all carved, ornately carved. And what they said was, no, Kev, this is hand carved out of stone. And it's a thousand year old pot. And what they do is they take that stone pot and they put it in a kiln till it's glowing red. Then they put all the food ingredients in it and it cooks inside that red hot stone. But I was afraid to touch the pot after they told me it was a thousand years old. And I was like, whoa, they said, no, 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 we got wooden spoons, so you don't have to break it. But I was like, I don't even want to touch a damn thing. So I knew that I would break the thousand year old pot. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was like, no, no, the mm-hmm. American came over. Yeah. And fucked it all up. <laughs> He's got them Americans. That's right. Kevin <laughs> yeah, like, we used to have a thousand year old pot. But, uh. It was a thousand year old pot. It, it wow. blew my mind. It was a millennia of people eating out of it. And they only broke it out for special occasions, special guests, but it was this phenomenal stew, but it was just the, how I, I thought it was metal because you could see all these carvings, but it all been hand carved and it was ancient. And it was just this permanency of, there was no need to make another pot because that pot worked fine. And as long as we don't break it, we'll have it. And they had it mm-hmm. forever. It went from, you know, I don't know how many generations <laughs> a millennia is, but how many generations a millennia is that pot had survived it. Mm-hmm. Crazy shit, man. It sounds like an incredible journey. Uh, I, hope, I hope many people have been inspired to go and do it again. Well, I think there's more to this story as well, but we've already kept you for so long. We've been uh, over a couple of hours now. So we should let you go. But we want to get you back on soon so we can talk more. If, if you would do that, that would be very cool. Oh, yeah. No, I'd love to, man. Yeah, Because this that the thing is that the, the Pakistan trip, it, it's 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 just it's such a, a, a poignant part of my life because what it did is it I've been wanting to go to that region forever mm-hmm. because most of the work that I've done in cannabis is with those type of plants. And I and I when I built my farm in Humboldt, it was, I was trying to really replicate those high mountain plains and the plants that shined in them. And I just always had this dream of going to these areas, but with all the war and the issues that we have from, especially, you know, us relationships, I just said, ah, fuck, I won't be able to do it in my lifetime because it's just been too turbulent. But when the team from Pakistan hit me up and said, Hey, we got this thing. And we chatted for a while and I realized it was thought out and Mm -hmm. then what they wanted to do was things that were relatively safe. We were going to stay away from border skirmishes. We were going to make sure we did smart movement. And there was zero issue, zero problems, zero. We didn't see any trauma. We didn't see any problems. And mm-hmm. like when I'm in other countries, I see some crazy shit, man. I, the stuff I saw in Colombia in the fucking jungle blew my mind. This, <laughs> fuck, whoa, there's <laughs> levels to the game. And some places are just at their own level. Pakistan was really healthy and safe and it allowed me to be able to like mentally relax so that I could just experience and enjoy and immerse myself in the world of the hash plant. Because when the hash plant came to the U S we didn't take the culture with us. We just took the plant. Mm -hmm. We didn't take the hashashin way of life and hash as a product. We just took the plant. The hash renaissance happens years later. Mm-hmm. And guys like Frenchie, you know, in the U.S. really like put that out. And then all the there's many people, but he was one of the first people to really talk about the traditional hash styles and the quality of resin in specific regions. And he really kind of ignited a fire in a lot of the youth to move forward as hash makers in today's world. So 
to be able to go there and see the plant that I used in all my work and then to see it used in its native form and in its native consumptive method, it just put it all together. And it just made me feel like I had now connected to the past more correctly. Just like mm. Colombia made me understand the duality. Mexico right. helped me understand the, the community that grows. Pakistan really let me connect into this holistic usage of the plant in its totality. Mm. Man, let's get you back on it. Maybe, well, you have the link for the Calendly. So if you if you want to book another link and then we can talk about Colombia next time, that would be cool. Sounds like you have some oh, stories yeah, yeah, there no, too. Down. Let's, Sweet. let's set up another. Yeah, you, you, you know how to reach me. I'm, I'm, I'm down because I, I love, I love, uh, what I know is that for so many people that they just don't get a chance to go and experience a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And you only experience it from say from from a like a like a little YouTube documentary. But the right. problem with that kind of shit to me is that in order to get any views, you got to put some kind of drama in it. And it mm. it doesn't allow you to really like get immersed in the person's experience of the place. And for so many, what they want is they don't they're not they don't want the drama. They want to be able to say, hey, what was it like to explore and experience these things in this way? Mm. And and that's what I'm into. Like that's what I listen to. If it's if you got a lot of fucking drama in your life, I really don't want to be around you. And I try not to get caught up in too much bullshit online either. Mm -hmm. So for me, being able to like talk about places I've been, and and we can always talk about the stuff that wasn't good, but I try to spend my effort on what is, so that way I can dive into it as deep as possible and get lost in it. Mm -hmm. And I just think that for most people that are you know we call them like herb freaks. That's what we want, man. We want to dive to the bottom of the pool. But with Herb, the closer you get to the bottom, the further you find yourself from the bottom. And it, it, it requires all of us to be able to really understand and enjoy. So when I get to be around people that explored regions that I didn't, I'm just fascinated when they really take me into the detail of it. And I get to round out my experiences through them. So now I'm, I'm always down to chat with you guys. Nice. Oh, I saw it out for a couple of weeks. So a couple of weeks might be too soon, but I'm willing to do that. But it's sure. it's up to you, Kevin, as the guest, of course. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No worries. No worries. We'll set up. We'll set up a time, and I, I'd love to chop it up. We can get into all kinds of stuff. So yeah, just feel free, man. Excellent. It's always my pleasure to be on your show. Awesome. Thank you very much, Kevin. We'll let you go, mate. Appreciate we appreciate you, you massively. Thank you. Thank you sir. Appreciate you so much, man. Right now, baby, enjoy. And there we go, everybody. An awesome interview with Kevin Jodry. And we're going to get him back again soon as well. In the next few weeks, I'll be booking up another session with Kevin, hopefully. And we can talk about the other journeys he has been on throughout his career. A really cool guy with a long career in the cannabis community as well, man. A legend. And it's always a pleasure to get him on the show. Looking forward to doing it again soon. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Don't forget to go and check out some content from Kevin as well. If you just do a Google search for Kevin Jodry, you'll find everything you need to know about him. So go and check that out if you want to know more. But thanks to Kevin for being here. Thanks to you guys for being here as well. Thanks for downloading the show. Thank you for listening. And I hope to catch you on the next one, which is Sunday for the live stream of on youtube.com slash high on homegrown. We will see you then. Stay high, stay safe, and we'll catch you on the next one. Goodbye.